Now grab your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 12. I only want to read you one verse, the text that we introduced last week. I'm going to read you just verse 10 out of Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God that dwells, endures forever. Guys, this is the second part of a four-part package that I mentioned last week concerning uh, how we want to lead you in the next few years, particularly in the, the whole world of accomplishing the Great Commission. I said last week, and I, I reiterate, um, if you can't be here, all four of them, it would, it would behoove you, it seems to me, not because the sermons are great, it would behoove you just to listen to them because so that you can be on the same page, so that you can understand what we're thinking in terms of how we want to lead you as a, as a congregation. If you were here last week, you, you may recall, um, or you may understand a little bit better what I meant when I say, when I said, you never preach on money when money is tight. You only preach on money when money's good, you know? Now relax, we're not, we're not gonna talk about money. We're not gonna talk, I mean, I said that last week, we are gonna talk about money on the 17th of October. But, um, uh, what we're talking about is unity. We're talking about, um, us being on the same page. We're talking about a, a congregation that's moving, that's mobilized to do something that is, um, that is significant for the kingdom of God. That's, that's what we're talking about, guys. You know, for instance, uh, maybe you've seen, um, the, the pastor that has been in the news so much this week in Atlanta, who has been charged with some very horrible things by three men, and he's supposed to make some kind of sermon. My, all I'm, all I'm, the only reason I'm mentioning that is, this would be the, it would not be a good time for him to talk about church unity. You know, <laughs> not today. Um, you have to talk about church unity when there's church unity. Even mentioning the word, uh, people start thinking, well, I wonder if there's some kind of something going on. No, no, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing going on. Nothing. But, um, if there were, then um, my getting up here and talking about church unity would really, you know, sound rather hollow. I want to talk about church unity when, when, when there is great harmony. And um, trust me, there is. Um, I, I said this last week, I'll say it again. The, uh, the staff, the eldership of this church couldn't be in greater unanimity than we are, that, as I can see it. There's no, there's no backroom shenanigan. There's no nothing. It's just a sweet, it's a sweet place to work. So in, in that context, I want to talk to you about us being on the same page as we move forward in the next three or four years. We're about to try something new. We're about to dismount one program and we're about to recreate it in a new image. And I'll tell you all about that next Sunday. Um, but very frankly, if our new strategy doesn't work, we'll dismount that one and we'll find us one that does because we want to see a church mobilized to accomplish the Great Commission. 
So I'll tell you all the details next week. So stay tuned and uh, you'll hear about it next week with slides and all that business. You know, imagine me using a slide. But uh, that's that's on tap for next week. But guys, before we look at the text, uh, I want to show you something that I, I bet you've never seen. Maybe some of you have. Um, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. You know what's in Genesis 11? That's that Tower of Babel story. Everybody knows the Tower of Babel story. The um, the citizens of uh, Babel uh, say in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. You know that story, the Tower of Babel, you know. Well, um, th- there's an interesting statement in that whole story that I want to draw your attention to. It's in verse 6. Um, in, in response to the people saying, come on, let's make a name for ourselves. The Lord said in verse 6, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, guys, um, <clears throat> I don't want to take this too far. I don't want to overstate my case. But look at the sentence, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now what? What is true about that particular juncture that would make it possible for them to do anything? Did you see it in verse uh, 6? They are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Why? Because they are one people. And they have one language. They're all on the same page. And God, again, here's where I don't want to overstate my case. But God says, unity is a powerful thing. I mean, <laughs> you get those people together and they're all on the same page. And why? There's just nothing. Nothing that they can't do. God says, a people united is a, is a powerful force. You know, guys, based on um, some of the comments that were made about my sermon last week, you know, I, I do get a few from week to week. Oh, that you should read my emails on Mondays and Tuesdays. And Sundays. Um, but, but um, the comments that were made were sweet comments. But um, uh, people said, um, they said, uh, oh, Jimmy, we've been meaning to join the church. And when, and when we'll be, you know, I, as soon as we can get our kids to the remembrance class, we'll be joined. Oh, yes, sir. Oh, yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to get right in there. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to join soon. When's the next remembrance class? Because I guess they heard me say. That church membership was really, really important. And I, and I, I think it's important. But ladies and gentlemen, that wasn't my point. I'm not talking to you about raising the church membership number. What I'm talking about is a, a, a unity among God's people. Now, I, I'll say this, and I, and I believe this. It's hard for you to be a part of a unified people of God when you don't belong to it or you haven't committed yourself to it. Yeah, I believe that. I think you should commit yourself to something. 
and with all of its flaws and warts and all that that I said, but yeah, yeah, I think you should do that. But I'm not talking to you about raising the membership number. Don't hear me say that, guys. That's not what I mean. What I'm talking about is, um, is a group of people as flawed and as, and as broken as we are buying into the same sense of duty and responsibility to Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking to you about. And you know what? When, if, it, when and if that were to happen, according to Genesis chapter 11, we would be unstoppable in terms of accomplishing great things for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I hope that kind of clears up a little bit, but um, l- let me take you to the text for a minute. And um, you may recall that what I did last week is just introduce the whole idea of, um, of Paul mentioning one anothering. Um, in verse 10, he, you find the term one another twice. And I told you last week there were 23 of those commands in the New Testament. 23 one anothering commands that exist. There are two of them in this text. We are told to love one another. Then we are told to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, let me comment about those two things a couple, just, just briefly. Guys, I think we all know that we're supposed to love one another, don't we? I mean, you know, you know that part? I think you do. Um, I think we already know that much. <clears throat> what you may find interesting, at least I did, in the Greek language, there are four words for love. There is the word agape, which everybody seems to know. There's the word philia, which is found in the word Philadelphia. Uh, the city of brotherly love. I think you know that one. Uh, there's the word storge. And then the other word is eros. And you probably know that word too. That's the word from which we get our word erotic. Interestingly enough, eros never appears in the New Testament. The other three, of course, do. And all three of them are found in verses 9 and 10 of, of Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans 9, um, let love be genuine. That's the word agape. But when you come down to verse 10, notice what he says, um, love one another with brotherly affection. In that one little sentence there, the other two words are found. Storge and philia. The, the point is that Paul is touching all of the love basis. Um, love, in all of its nuances, is supposed to characterize us as God's people. Paul couldn't find any more words to use when he got ready to describe the responsibility that is on us to love one another. He touches all of the love basis by using all every word that is available to him in the Greek language to describe the love that's supposed to exist among us. Now, guys, what what's your what what I want to suggest that Paul is is describing is a spiritual family, um, a, a, um, a mutually supportive family. Christians are, are to be family, spiritual kin. You know, Jesus says, nobody leaves brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers for a nice namesake who won't be given a um, hundred times more brothers and sisters. The point is, you become a Christian, you lose one family, but you get another one, this one. We are spiritual kinfolk. And guys, <clears throat> um, 
within this family, this spiritual family, the family dynamic, that is, the, the grounds of our relationship is not agreement. Would you listen to that? The grounds of our relationship is not agreement. How many times have I said this? I love that woman who sits on that front pew every Sunday. But she and I don't agree on everything. Guys, the, the, the dynamic of this news family is that we are devoted to one another based on our commonality in Christ Jesus. But if our devotion to one another rests on our agreement, that will always be in jeopardy. That is, the relationship will always be in, just, in jeopardy. Because if, if agreement is the only thing that we, we've got going for us, eventually we're going to find something to disagree about. One does not leave a family, a human family, because there's a disagreement there. Do you? But our bond is not, is not precipitated by our agreement on everything. I don't know that there's a person on the planet with whom I agree about everything. Nor, ladies and gentlemen, is the basis of this relationship that we have based on, um, oh, I really like you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not told, I'm not commanded to like you. I am commanded to love you. Um, but but I, 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 very frankly, there are probably some that I would far prefer going out to supper on Friday night with than others. I would enjoy them far more than some others. I'm not told to, to, to like. I'm told to love. And that is something that, that has as its center this whole idea of commitment. That's why you've got to be committed to something. You committed to me and me committed to you. Guys, um, you do realize, don't you, that no controversial viewpoint or no controversial doctrine is in itself intrinsically divisive. Jeremy? That is, no, no doctrine is divisive. All controversies and discord and division resides not in the points of disagreement, but in the parties themselves. Do you understand that? What James says that in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that you're... Passions are at war within you? My, my point is simply, guys, what is it that caused strife? Is it, is it different viewpoints? No. It's our innards. That's what causes the strife. N- not the, the, the points of disagreement. It's the innards. And so you, you thus get this exhortation on the part of Paul and the part of James. In all of its fullness, we are to love one another. In every possible word that he could figure out or find, he uses to try and describe that love that's supposed to exist among us. Now, guys, before I leave that, do you find that that you have a deeper affection and a deeper understanding with with fellow Christians, a better, a more commonality, 
more in common with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ than you have with members of your own family who are not Christians? If so, may I say to you that that is proof of your, of your regeneration. That is, that this exhortation of Romans chapter 12 is happening in you. You kind of find yourself drawn to this spiritual kin more than you do almost your blood kin. That's a sign of your own regeneration, folks. Now, I, I got to hurry because there's a lot to do, but uh, I, I want you to, the, the other exhortation, the other one another in command is outdo one another in showing honor. Paul says that elsewhere. He says the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. But what, what, is, what is honor? Well, guys, that, that's, a, that's a hard word, that honor word. That's a hard word to kind of corral into one definition. But, but these things could be said about honor. Honor is um, uh, to treat someone else else as valuable. Or um, honor is a willingness to let others have the credit. You know, Ronald Reagan used to have a little plaque that sat on his desk that said, there is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. But we're very concerned that we get credit. You work real hard in vacation Bible school, and then somebody forgot to thank you, and you get your feelings hurt. Um, guys, this is not an exhortation, an, an injunction to politeness. That is, after you, sir, oh no, after you, madam, after you, not, 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 not that. Um, it is, it is coming to the place where I don't mind who gets the credit and who gets the praise for it. Honoring one another. And that, by the way, is a, is a source of real struggles in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. It was a struggle at Corinth. People were lining up behind Paul and people were lining up behind Apollos and Peter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're supposed to be people who are eager that others get treated with the um, with the kind of esteem that that they deserve, not the stuff that we so much long for. Now, guys, those are two injunctions in Romans chapter twelve, verse ten: loving one another and outdoing one another in honor. Okay. There's there's twenty one others. 21 more of those that we're not going to look at, but 21 more one anothering commands that exist in the New Testament. Okay? Um, but there's a problem. There is a fly in the ointment. In terms of our executing those two and the other 21 one another in, one another in commands, there's a real problem. There's a real um, barrier. And I don't know what you want to call it. We could call it by a lot of words. Um, we could call it pride. We could call it self. That is, in terms of executing these two and the other 21, other, one another in commands, the problem that exists is, uh, whatever word you like best, self Pride, um, 
C.S. Lewis calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind. So guys, here's what I'm suggesting to you. I just tried to explain two of the one anothering commands. But (laughs) as difficult as those two might be, there are 21 more. Just as difficult. Just as hard on we individual believers. Because there's a fly in the ointment. And very frankly, guys, I really didn't come to you this morning to talk about Romans 12.10. I came to you to talk to you about the fly in the ointment. The thing that prevents us, the thing that hinders us from obeying this and all other one anothering commands. And what I'm going to call it is spiritual pride. And that's what I want to analyze with you in the next 15 minutes and we're done. Guys, and actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to summarize a book for you. Back in the 1740s, I think it's the 1740s, there was a great revival that took place. In fact, I read a book entitled um, uh, The Revival in the Middle Colonies. Now, this is before the Revolutionary War. There was, a, there was a revival that broke out in the Middle Colonies and, and up into New England. And one of the leaders of that revival was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. That's so unfortunate. The only thing we know about Jonathan Edwards is that he did that. He preached that sermon. Probably the most famous sermon ever preached. It's studied in, in, um, in literature departments all over the world. Um, <clears throat> as this revival began to advance, as you might well re- imagine, problems began to occur. Ugly things began. I mean, uh, you know, there was a... There was a whole segment of the church that opposed the whole blasted thing. Saw it nothing, saw it as nothing but excess. Um, spoke very badly about all the guys that were leading it. And so Jonathan Edwards set out and wrote a book. And his book was entitled Thoughts on Revival. Kind of blah, isn't it? Thoughts on Revival. And so in that little book that I went out and read, it's 120 pages. He, um, he defines what he considers to be the thing that hinders the church from advancing and moving forward. The thing that was stopping or was at least devaluing This great revival that had broken out in in, the 1740s. And he said the biggest problem that keeps the church from advancing is what he called spiritual pride. What I want to do is simply summarize for you the points that he made. And then we'll quit. What this is, is a description in seven points, all from Jonathan Edwards... A seven-point description of spiritual pride, which is the thing that stops us from doing this. With me? He introduces the subject by saying that nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Pride is God's most stubborn enemy. 
He that thinks himself most out of danger is indeed most in danger. Nothing sets you further away from the devil's reach than humility. But the thing that we've got to wrestle with is how to get there. Because the thing we're guilty of is the opposite of that. Spiritual pride. And here's that seven point description. He says, spiritual pride, first of all, disposes you to speak of other people's sins, whereas spiritual humility disposes you either to be silent or to speak of them with grief and pity. You get that. It's pretty simple. It's the old log and the speck in the eye thing. Matthew 7, when Jesus says, um, you know, you got a log in your eye, but you're concerned about the speck in that other person's eye. You know, what's your problem? You got a big old log there, but you don't see it, but you see the speck. How did that happen? Well, spiritual pride disposes us to speak of other people's sins instead of our own. And humility, humility is the stuff that says, <laughs> I got so many problems myself. I sure can't be concerned about yours. I got so much brokenness in me. I got so much sin that I'm dealing with that I'm overwhelmed with my sin. I don't have time to be over, be picking on you. But spiritual pride is marked by this spiritual superiority. That is, <laughs> I don't do that. Spiritual pride is something that makes you far more aware of somebody else's sin than it does about your own. A humble man views other people's sins as far smaller than his own. I, I, I don't know where I got this, but somebody defined humility. Um, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Just stop thinking of yourself, would you? But we're consumed with self. And that produces some kind of spiritual high-mindedness that makes us more aware of other people's sins than I am of my own. That's a mark of spiritual pride. Here's the second one. Spiritual pride makes people stiff and inflexible. That is, um, they're unteachable. They're, um, they're always right. You know, it's kind of the old my way or the highway thing, you know. Because I'm smarter than you other idiots out there. And so, um, I'm not listening to whatever advice you might give because I'm, I'm rendered stiff and inflexible by my own spiritual pride. Third, spiritual pride often separates because others are not as good as I am. Um, it's a, it's a tendency towards exclusivity instead of inclusivity. You know, our group gets it. Nobody else does. 
um, it, it's a it, it's a t- spiritual pride moves you to be towards a, rather exclusive because we got it and they don't. Fourth, spiritual pride takes great notice of opposition and of an affront, of being slighted. Um, I'm hypersensitive. I wear my, my, my emotions or my, my feelings on my shirt sleeve. Um, I get my feelings hurt very easily. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned that people didn't write me a thank you note. I'm very aware of any supposed affront that might be executed against me. Um, fifth, spiritual pride makes one eager to have others defer to him. Uh, to make special allowances for him. Um, everybody, um, everybody will need my help, but I don't like anybody, um, giving me any help. Sixth, spiritual pride makes one forget the source of his successes. You know, guys, successful fishermen should not pay homage to the nets. I didn't, I didn't make that up. That was Jonathan Edwards too. What we forgot, from whence cometh all of the opportunities and all of the education and all of the... Uh, abilities and that we possess and we take credit for things that are nothing more than gifts of God I forget my the source of successes and then finally um, spiritual pride uh, prompts in us or tends to make us treat other people with neglect. You know, guys, I have to say um, one of the things that I think makes me the maddest, that's not, that's overstated, but something that I notice a lot is when people treat service health at a restaurant poorly. I was working out one day at the um, um, Germantown Community Center and and I, I think it must have been on a Friday because I was, I would showered there. I don't normally shower there because I come home and shower, but I was meeting Susie and so I was getting showered and I would cleaned up and dressed and, and a guy was in the locker room with me. He's a young guy. And, uh, he said, gosh, I'm almost late for work. And, and I said, where do you work? He said, I work at Olive Garden, which is Olive Garden. Oh, they're in Winchester. And, oh yeah. And he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. He said, oh my. He said, um, the only shift people don't want to work at the Olive Branch is the noon shift on Sundays. Not because they aren't big tippers, but because there's just so much grief that we get from the church going folk. We if you're guilty of spiritual pride, you, you tend to treat others with neglect. 
Now, gang, if any of that describes you, then you are the enemy of church unity. You're the fly in the ointment. Here's the problem. We're all guilty. This describes all of us. Every blasted one of us. None of us have escaped the curse. So this synergy that I alluded to as I began in Genesis chapter 11. Remember that? Oh boy, those guys are one. They can do anything. They can't stop them. That, that, that potency behind a unified people. We'll never taste it. Because every last one of us are eat up. Well, I, I tell you what. I won't say that you're eat up. I'll just say that I'm eat up. You're guilty. But maybe I am alone and eat up. With spiritual pride. So guys, we come to a text like Romans 12.10 and we're told to love one another. And outdo one another in showing honor. And we think, who in the world does that? (laughs) That's nice church talk. Whoever does that, we're, we're, we're foreigners to these 23 one another in commands. Because there's a fly in our ointment. And the fly is spiritual pride that we're all guilty of. I'll close like this, ladies and gentlemen. Being told by Romans chapter 12, verse 10, to love one another and to show honor to one another should drive us back to Christ to say, oh, Lord Jesus, I need you far more than I thought I needed you. Don't let me, don't let me be the fly in the ointment, Lord Jesus. Don't let me be the one that stops the people of God from doing something great in the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, dominate me. I need to be closer to you than I ever dreamed. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, I come again to confess my sin. To lay hold of the provisions that you have made for me in in your great work at Calvary. And now, close to you. That's where I want to stay. Our Father, I I do pray that you would give Grace Ivan a taste of that. A taste of the sense that we are a a people of oneness, not because we all agree or because we all have personalities that are alike, but that we're one because we share a common Savior, the one who has given 
injunctions, commands, orders to all of his people that we are failing to obey. And so, God, by the power of your spirit, would you grant us a fresh vision, a fresh glimpse of the gospel. The gospel that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. A gospel that tells us that Christ is not only my justification, he is my sanctification. That Christ is the hub and everything else is circumference. He's the center, he is the life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to draw nigh. We want to come back to the Savior of ours and lay hold of the life that is in him. Because apart from him... We can do nothing. So, Father, would you have mercy and grace on the people that have found the the joy of being made sons and daughters of the living God, but long to be a part of something that expands the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's, of course, in his name that we pray.